to the Old Testament. We're going to go back to Hosea. This is going to be chapter 11 that we're looking at. So Hosea 11, we're going to be reading um, chapter 11, verses 1 through 12, verse 1. So hear the word of the Lord. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling before, from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word when judgment is pronounced. We thank you for your word when your compassion is revealed. And we thank you for um, every part of it in between. I pray that this morning you would give us receptive hearts, receptive ears, and receptive minds to hear what you have to say, and that we would be changed by that. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as you are all aware, there's a holiday coming up this week. Um, Thanksgiving is just a few days away. And with that comes a lot of emotions for people usually, right? Like it can be a lot of excitement or it can be a lot of dread somewhere on that, on that spectrum. Um, and I found a survey uh, this week in the news that was just interesting, kind of speaks to some of that. So in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, at the beginning of November, um, almost 2,000 Americans were surveyed and asked about their holiday plans. And while 81% of the people who responded said they're going to see their family over Thanksgiving and Christmas, for instance, only 55% indicated that they were actually looking forward to seeing their family. And so families, just by that statistic alone, as general as it is, you know, families are complex. Um, there's, there's a lot going on in any given family. They're messy, they're vibrant, and there's, there's always something happening. And they can sometimes experience seasons of conflict or even upheaval. And no family is immune to that. Not your family or the family down the street, and not even the royal family in the UK. Um, one, one example of this 
if you're into British history or anything like that. Um, 1992 was what Queen Elizabeth called her Annus Horribilis, her horrible year, right? And so that was a year that a lot of her children were having marital problems. Some people separated. Charles and Diana were about to be getting divorced not long after that. And a large portion of Windsor Castle burned down that year. And um, that was a horrible year for even one of the most prominent families um, in the world, right? No one is immune to uh, family conflict, family turmoil, and that includes the family of God, right? And that's what we've seen a lot in Hosea as we've been here these past several weeks. Um, there's some serious familial issues taking place, right? And we've seen these brought to light in Hosea 1 through 3 when we began the book with the life of Hosea himself, right? When he took on a wife who was unfaithful um, and undeserving of his love <clears throat> and how that story really parallels God's relationship with Israel, and so this is no family that's without something to work through. But as we also saw in chapters one through three, a dysfunctional family is not the theme of the book of Hosea. Thankfully, that's not to be our main takeaway from the text today or the text that we've been looking at or the text we're going to continue to look at um, in the weeks ahead. Um, so that's, that's not the theme. But the theme is the relentless love of the Lord for Israel, right? That, that should be the takeaway. That should be what we see throughout these pages, as challenging as they are to work through. Um, and even in the midst of those themes of judgment and just punishment for disobedience, right? It's that relentless love of God that we see over and over again really um, stand out throughout the book. And everything that we have covered up to this point in Hosea um, from chapters 1 through 10 has really been a buildup to what we're going to cover today. So if you think of it as like ascending a hill, right? Our, our text today, chapter 11, is really kind of at the peak um, of the, the activity of the book of Hosea. Um, this passage has a lot to say about the heart of God towards his wayward children. And so if you walk away with anything from the sermon, let it be this. And if you're taking notes, I think this is a good place to start. We're going to base kind of our um, look at this book on this idea. Um, so our God deals with his people in faithful love, not in fits of frustration. So in light of God's love for his people, Run from the emptiness of sin and toward the fullness of his promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to say that again. In light of God's love for his people, run from the emptiness of sin and toward the fullness of his promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at that in three different um, sections. So there are the family complications of the past we see in verses one through four. There's, there are the fearful consequences of present sin that we see in verses 5 through 9, and there are the fervent promises of the future that we see um, in verses 10 through 12. So let's start with the first. Um, and, and really how I'm walking through this is I'm breaking up that main idea. So this first section really deals with God's love for his people. That's what we see here in this first section. So as the chapter begins, we also see a description of God and Israel's relationship. Right, not as a marriage between husband and wife, like we've kind of characteristically seen in Hosea up to this point. That's kind of been uh, the main metaphor for their relationship. You know, the unfaithful wife and the faithful, loving husband. Um, but now that that shifts a little bit, then the way that the relationship is described is changing and talked about in a new way. Um, it's talked about um, as a relationship between a father and a son. So looking at verse one, it says, "When Israel was a child, I loved him." And out of Egypt, I called my son. So this is, this is really marking a transition point, right? And 
in the language here and the way that the relationship is talked about, um, and even in the tone of how it's being talked about, because right, so much of the past 10 chapters were just heavy with judgment and heavy with the consequences of Israel's sin towards their God, right? And while that is discussed um, in chapter 11, it's really starting off with a much more tender note. And I think you know, we should pause and, and pay attention to that and notice that. Um, and so w- with this, with the sharp transition, it would have also been um, a sharp transition for people hearing it, right? For Jew- Jews that were hearing um, Hosea speak these words, this, this would have been a little bit of a different way to talk about God than maybe what they've heard before. So while so much of the book is a picture of judgment and destruction, um, now we see language of calling and adoption, right? We see, I loved him. I called my son. There's a fatherly picture presented here um, that really would have made the hearer pause. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I was looking at a commentary by James Montgomery Boyce, who's a theologian, and um, he addresses this, this, and I thought it was very interesting. So he says, the idea of God being a father was not at all common in that day. It's been pointed out by a number of Old and New Testament specialists that before the coming of Jesus Christ, no individual Jew ever seemed to have thought of God as his or her personal father. So with that in mind, you can see how chapter 11 would really be shocking in a way for the one hearing or reading this. Right. I mean, it can be too easy for us today in the, the West with our focus on individualism and the self to take this kind of language for granted. Right. But it really should make us pause and, and see the depth of God's love for his people. That's, that's why it's there. It's meant to slow us down and to kind of break up some of that, that judgment language um, for a moment so we can pause and reflect on who God is. And so on the receiving end of this love, we see like we have all these other times before in the book of Hosea, a rebellious Israel who has from the very beginning run to other lovers, right? So looking at verse two, um, God says of Israel, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols, right? So this is a complicated family. The more love they would receive from the Lord, the more they seem to not want it, right? The more they would hide from it, run from it, go anywhere else, but to, to him and his love. That's a complicated family. And you can probably think of some situations where a parent is pained by similar things. Maybe people you know, maybe you are that parent, maybe you're part of that family where um, there was not a lot of dysfunction, people were loved, nothing went wrong, but the, the child on the, re- the receiving end of that love and parenting didn't, didn't want it, right? They distanced themselves from their family, they maybe don't speak to their family anymore. You know, these are, these are real relatable scenarios. And, and they exist in our fallen world. And you can see that affected God's family as well. Um, <clears throat> and so the more they're loved, the more they reject that love. And, and this fatherly imagery continues in verses three and four. I'm still looking at that. It says, God says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. I healed them. And I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. Um, just look at that language, right? You get this beautiful picture of, of God as a, a loving, doting parent, right? Who's not only called Israel, but he um, has, is coming alongside them and teaching Israel and loving them. Um, he doesn't just call them and leave them, right? He calls them and walks with them. And so you get this image of a father teaching a little toddler how to walk, right? And there's the cords of kindness and bands of love language um, 
which almost would have been, if you're thinking of that, that imagery of the parent and child, like a, almost like a little, a little rope that would have kind of held the, the child up while they were learning to walk and kind of wobble around. That's what that would, that would be like. And that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture, right? It's, it's just breathtaking almost, the way that God is speaking of his relationship to his people. And we, we shouldn't miss that, right, right away. We, sh- we should note that um, our God is, is loving. He is, he is a father in Israel. These are his children, and he's adopted them and cared for them. Um, this God has led, who has led them spiritually um, also has a, a very, and a, excuse me, <laughs> this God has led them spiritually and physically, right, throughout their life. Like, this isn't just a spiritual um, shepherding that we see God doing. He actually brought them out of Egypt, right? He brought them out of slavery and oppression. He keeps delivering them from their enemies. So there's, there's a real physical element to what's happening here that could be hard for us to identify with sometimes, I think, but I think it's important to note, like this is holistic care, holistic love. And so this really reveals the ongoing nature of his love towards his people. And in spite of everything, right? In spite of everything they've done, even if you just look at the book of Hosea um, and don't look at all the other books before or after it, right? Even if you just look at this, this book, um, you see this unfaithful, undeserving people, but you, you see their faithful God who's never stopped uh, loving and caring for them. And so um, you know, this, this chapter really opens with that beautiful picture of God's love, which leads us to um, kind of the second emphasis. So it shifts from talking about God and his love and, and Israel and and their attitude towards that love to just talking about the emptiness of sin that they're involved in. And so after this beautiful picture of God that's laid out in verses five through nine, another side of God and his nature is revealed. That's also seen consistently throughout the book, right? And that's his judgment against ungodliness and idolatry. So Israel will not return to the Lord, verse five says. And while he will not return them to Egypt, while he won't just send them back to slavery and have a repeat of of what happened in the Exodus account, for instance, there's still going to be some very weighty consequences uh, to their actions, right? And, and the consequences are devastating ones. The sword shall rage against their cities, we see, consuming and devouring them, right? This is total all-out warfare that they don't survive. Uh, this is a, a bloody picture that is painted by the Lord here as a result of Israel's sin and, and their rejection of him. Um, and and why, does, why does this happen? And I think the, the reason here is helpful. So looking at verse 7, uh, the Lord says, my people are bent on turning away from me. Um, and literally, if you're looking at this phrase, um, it, it's my people are addicted to turning away from me. This is what this means. And so think about that, right? Can you relate to that? Does that characterize our life sometimes? And I think... We could probably all say yes at some level, right? We, we just can't seem to do the things we need to do, right? Paul gets at this in the New Testament. Um, he talks about how he, he can't obey God the way that he knows he, he, he needs to, the way he even wants to. And he, he asks for deliverance from the, this body of death, right? And maybe we can, can relate to that even right now in these moments. So judgment is coming because the people are addicted to running from God. And judgment is also coming because of their own counsels, we see in verse six. So they think they know best, right? The people um, think that they know better than the Lord knows. And especially when it comes to um, protection from their enemies, this is one way we see this play out a lot over and over in the New Testament. But um, they're afraid of Assyria. So, you know, maybe we should make a deal with Assyria. Maybe 
we could get um, close to them and, and kind of draw some boundaries that are going to help protect us. And maybe if we trade with Egypt, um, they'll be less likely to be um, violent towards us in the future, right? It's kind of a survival instinct that kicks in. Uh, and it's all rooted in not trusting the words of God, but trusting in what they think is best. And too often we can do that um, as well. And this is really the great lie of sin, isn't it? One author once said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And you see that, right, in, in the Israel account. We see that in the world around us all the time. We see that in our own lives a fair amount. And, and that's, that's the great lie of sin, right? We know best. We, we can do this. We can do things our way. Um, and everything's going to work out great, right? Because of our own counsels, right? And we should be aware of that. We should, we should not lean in to the urge to rely on our own counsel, our own wisdom, or the wisdom of man. Um, we, we must rely on the wisdom of God and what he has said. Um, we can see this as far back as the garden, right? When, when the serpent tempts Eve and Adam. Did God really say not to do this? Right? And so there's always going to be opportunities in our life to, to stop and, and be faced with that choice, right? To either lean into the, the promises of God or lean into the impulse to protect ourselves or go our own way or, you know, just that we know best. And we, we've got to ask for God's help to, to resist that urge because that is a lie, right? Sin will take us places we don't want to go and we won't be able to get out of those places. Sin is like a weed that really chokes the life out of everything it touches. And I think until we can see it that way in our own lives, we're going to be tempted to be okay with it to some extent, right? Until you see sin for what it is, it's going to be really easy to fall into a lot of these traps that Satan sends our way. And similarly, until we see our God for who he is, it's going to be easy to do that too. And so we have to have a right perspective. Right? And clearly Israel's was not right. It was, it was pretty warped at this point. They continued to do the opposite of what God had said. And so sin is like that weed that ch chokes the life out of everything it touches. And in the case of Israel, their collective sin had put a serious strain on their relationship with God. And so it can be easy to look at these words, especially in 5 through 9, when the Lord is pronouncing definite judgment. And the end of them, essentially. So it's easy to read this and, and ask, is this the end for them? Um, have, have they gone too far? Is there no hope for God's people anymore? Is it too late to be saved? And I think we can relate to this, this thought too, can't we? Sin can characterize far too much of our lives, right? No matter who we are or how, how hard we work or how good we try to be, right? Sin's always there. It's always at the door of our life. It's always a part of our life that we're affected by. And it can be easy to feel that way. It warps our hearts. It hurts other people. And it drives a wedge between us and God. And it can be so easy to, to think, is it too late for me? Is this it? Have I gone too far this time? Is God done with me now? Like, can I just look forward to, to nothing but his just, just punishment for my sin? And maybe you're here today and you feel like that. Um, that is a perfectly natural way to feel as a human in a fallen world, right? We can, can definitely feel that way. Like you're too far gone for God to love and rescue you. Uh, but listen, th there's hope. And that's what I want us to hear 
in this chapter. Whether you're a professing Christian or whether you're someone who's never acknowledged Christ as your only hope for salvation, whether you've never even heard the name of Christ, right? These next verses really provide a word that we need to hear. We need to reflect on and we need to be changed by it. In verses eight and nine, uh, the God who's planning imminent judgment and destruction on his people seems to have a change of heart. So let's look at that. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? And so Adma and Zeboim were two cities that were destroyed around the same time as Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're wondering where these names come from, you don't really hear a lot about them. But these are cities that were just laid waste by the judgment of God. And, and God's saying, will this be the result for Israel? Will this be the result for my people? No. How can I do that to my people, God says. And God's speaking in such personal and emotional terms here, right? We should, we should really think about that. Like, who is speaking, right? It's not Hosea speaking. God's speaking through Hosea. Um, and God is, is using these, these deeply emotional um, words to describe what, what's happening here. And I think that should affect us, right, as we read it. We should reflect on that. He, he says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. So this God of judgment, right, this, this, this God who is perfect and holy, and anyone who gets in his way, anyone who doesn't abide by the design he's created, um, he can justly punish them, right? We, we would deserve it. We deserve it when we, we fall short of, of his standard. But instead, what does he say about his people? Instead of laying waste to them, he says, no, I, I can't do it, right? My compassion grows warm and tender. So he remembers his people. And that's what I want us to, to really see and hear this morning. If, if you're here, or even if you know someone in your life that feels like they're too far gone, or they've done too much, or they've hated God and rejected God too many times, this is the word for us to hear, right? God, God cares. He remembers those who belong to him. And so the very ones, the very people who have rejected him, and who are an object of his wrath, like in that moment of his anger, he remembers them. And while there's a very real present consequence for sin um, that plays out for Israel and that plays out for us in our own lives, right? Um, while even with God remembering us, right, we're still, there's still consequences to our actions. People are hurt by things we do. We're hurt by things we do. And our relationship with God is affected by the sin in our life, right? So hear that, that's a real thing. Uh, but, God remembers his people, and that's also a real thing. I mean, so while there are those real consequences playing out for Israel here, we see that God does not completely destroy them. He does not completely destroy those who belong to him. And notice what God is saying. In verse 9, he says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. But this is more than Israel just kind of dodging a bullet, right? This is not just a... Whew, that was close. You know, that's not, that's not to be the takeaway here. Um, and, and in our own lives, when we read these words, you know, belonging to the Lord, um, being one with Christ through what he has done is so much more than us dodging a, a bullet of punishment from God. It's, it's not a get out of hell free card, right? It's, it's so much more than that. So don't belittle that in your life, right? Don't belittle who God is. Don't belittle who you are in him. Um, when you think through all that he has done and you think through his great love. 
And so, no, God is saying, um, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And so, you know, this is way more than just dodging a bullet again, right? God is saying, I'm not going to deal with you like man would deal with you. And you think about your own life. When we're hurt, what is our response? Right? We want to hurt back in a proportional way, right? If someone does anything to us or our family, we want to do it back to them at least tenfold. You know, and that's not what God is saying. He's, he's saying, I'm not repaying you based on what you deserve. There's nothing you can deserve enough for me, right? And I think that's important for us to hear also, right? We, we can't work hard enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't do all these moral things enough to earn God's, God's love for you and his deliverance for you from your sin, right? Hear that this morning because God is saying, I, I'm God, I'm not a man, right? I'm the holy one in your midst. And so he deals with his people in faithful love, not in fits of frustration, right? Not, not in ways that we might deal with one another. And I think that's important, right? Because that fatherly language really has drawn us in to this point in Hosea 11. Um, it's, it's easy to see the warmth and softness and these are all great things, right? We can't get enough of it, right? We, we love that this is how our God is towards his people. Um, but he's still not an earthly father, right? And I think that's important to note. He's, he is God, this is God speaking, and he's like no one else and nothing else. And he responds to sin um, and to hurt and to rejection in shocking, surprising ways, right? The ways that we would never dream of. Um, I think a lot of times in our life, we can be waiting just in despair and in despondency from our own sin. It's almost as if we're waiting for the ax to fall on our head, right? Because we deserve it, and we know we deserve it. Uh, but God is saying in him, uh, there's hope. Because he's not like us. He's not like any earthly parent or any earthly justice force, right? And this is the only explanation that makes sense as to why he would not wipe out Israel and us off the face of the earth, right? Because of who we are in our heart, because of all the ways that we have acted against him over the course of our lives and all the ways that Israel has acted against him over the course of their history up to this point. Um, nothing else makes sense other than God isn't like anyone else. And so thanks be to God for that, right? He's, he's not, and we can, we can celebrate that. And we should celebrate that, that he is not like any other people or any other things. And so that present judgment that we may deserve and that Israel definitely deserved is not to be the end, right? It's not to be the end for Israel, as we can see through the rest of scripture. It's not to be the end of us if you're in Christ today, right? While there may be consequences for your sin, now those consequences don't have the final word for your soul. And so, so hear that, right? There's a glimmer of hope here in the promise of a future that's redeemed, something to look forward to in the midst of how hard it is to love and follow the Lord in the present. So in your life, as you experience the temptations and the effects of sin that are always there, right? Um, run from those things. Don't give in to despair. Don't give in to temptation. Run away from it and run as far and as fast as you can from it. But don't just run aimlessly, right? You're not just running through a field with your, your arms up aimlessly going somewhere else. You're going very specifically towards the one who alone can, can rescue you, right? He's the one who promises to rescue those who belong to him. So run to this God, this God of love, this God of compassion, this God of justice. Run to him. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 13, 14, 
Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Run toward your faithful God because a beautiful future is promised for those of us who do that. Right? When you see him as better than anything the world has to offer, um, that's, where, that's where there's hope. That's, that's, that's what gives us the sustaining power that we need to make it through this broken world, right, is, is that promise of a bright future. And so let's talk through that now as we look at the concluding verses of chapter 11. So these um, are the fullness of God's promises fulfilled in Christ. That's, that's kind of the overarching theme of this section. God's tender heart towards his people is not just sparing them from judgment, but his love for them is sealing for Israel and for us today the promise that we will one day, at last, return to the Lord and be with him forever. While some may fall away, and sin does take hold of, of some, even people who are professed Christians, right? And they, they, they fall away, they're unfaithful. They don't return to, to God in this in this life, right? Some they are going to do that. Israel had many people that did that, many rulers even that did that. Um, but the promise is that on the, at one day, at last, right, the ones who are left are going to be gathered back up to be, to be with him. There's going to be a remnant of people who go from being scattered to being gathered back with their God. And so let's look at uh, verses 10 through 12. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Um, and these verses, they're, they're so rich, right? And you see, you see where that hope is kind of coming from here. The Lord is going to roar like a lion and his people are going to respond. And when he calls this time, his children will come out of their exile from all the places that they've been. Specifically, he mentions these enemies of God's people, right? Assyria and Egypt. They're going to come from those places and their aimlessness, and they're going to be returned to their homes. What a beautiful picture that is, right? In the midst of, um, even for us, living in this world that just doesn't seem to fit, right? And we, we see it a lot in political discourse and in just the, the trends of the day. We just don't seem to fit here. If you belong to Christ, if you're seeking to faithfully follow him, this world is going to seem all kinds of uncomfortable for you and I, right? It, it's not, not super homey, right? And, and that's the point, right? This, this isn't our home, right? We are on a pilgrimage going somewhere else. And I think we have to focus on that somewhere else if we're going to get there and follow God faithfully in the meantime. Because we see this picture of God gathering his people back, returning them to their homes, returning his people back to where they belong. And that's true of Israel here, and it's true of us today. It's something we can look forward to, right? Because life is hard and sin is real. And there are going to be days when you feel like you've rejected God for the, the last ultimate time, right? And you're beyond the reach of his love. But hear this, he's coming. He's coming for you. And if you're a Christian here today, that is true. That's your story. That's where your life is headed. That's the trajectory you're on. No matter how you might feel about it right now, or you might feel about it in the privacy of your home or in your mind, right? Know that if you belong to Christ, he's coming for you. And so no matter what happens in this life, the flesh and the devil, uh, they don't get the final word, right? God does. And the day uh, came many years later for Israel even when God would send 
another one out of Egypt, right? In Matthew 2, 15, we see how Jesus, as a really young child, and his parents are fleeing for protection from Herod, who's looking to kill him. And then they stay in Egypt until Herod dies, and they are able to return to, to Nazareth, where Jesus' earthly ministry is going to start, right? And so we see a parallel to this in the life of Christ. And so that day was coming for Israel, even though they didn't know what that was going to look like. It was coming. God's perfect son, who he'd sent into the world to satisfy God's judgment against sin and to restore a wayward people's relationship with God, was coming. And this time, God would give up and hand over Jesus, right? Whereas he says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? And how can I hand you over, O Israel? He does hand over, and he does give up his own son in our place so that we might know him and, and persevere in him, right? And so in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we're reminded of this, right? That God would give up and hand over Jesus because it says, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And this was all done out of that divine love that we see at the beginning of this chapter, right? A love that's too rich and too deep and too complex for us to wrap our heads around or our hearts around, but it is true. And so as, as you leave here today, as, as we prepare to go to the table for the Lord's Supper, remember that, right? It's, it's true. These words are all true and God's coming for his people. Take, take heart in the midst of the hardness of our days, the hardness of life in this fallen world. Um, and just briefly looking at um, verse 11, 12, and 12, 1, um, they really show us just a final contrast, I think, of the life that's lived trusting in God's faithful promises versus the life that continues to just try to do things your own way and, and tries to spin your gears, and, right? So I'm going to read those quickly. 11, 12 says, Ephraim has surrounded me, uh, excuse me, yep, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah, Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One, right? So this, this remnant of Israel, this, this kingdom of Israel, right? They are still walking faithfully with God. And then in verse 12, one, you see Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. So this is kind of coming almost full circle in a way. Um, Ephraim is still not trusting God. They, they're doing the same things that God is talking about, right? They're continuing to be characterized as, as this wayward child. Don't be like that as you leave here today. Don't, don't hear God's words. Don't feast on him here this morning. Don't walk away and not be changed by, by those things and the reality that um, he is for his people. Don't do that this morning. See, see the beauty of faithfulness, right? See the importance of faithfulness. Um, uh, this, the title for the sermon today, you might be wondering, because it's a little bit different from what we usually do for sermon titles, but it comes from a song from Sandra McCracken called The Love of Christ is Rich and Free. And some of its words tie in really well with our text, I think. Really the whole song, but I'm not going to sing a song for you just yet. Um, it, the words say in this first stanza, the love of Christ is rich and free, fixed on his own eternally. Nor earth, nor hell can it remove Long as he lives, his own he'll love. His loving heart engaged to, to be their everlasting surety. Twas love that took their cause in hand, and love maintains it to the end. 
right? So this morning, in these moments, in light of God's love for his people, and if you're in Christ, in light of God's love for you, run away from the emptiness of sin and run toward the fullness of God's promises that are all fulfilled in his son, Jesus Christ. Run and don't look back, right? Turn away from those worthless idols. Don't look behind at them. Run towards the glorious future that you've been promised and that's been secured for the saints who've gone before us and for you and I at a great cost to our loving God. So commit your life to him, all for the glory of his name. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel and how it rings true. Um, Even in this chapter in Hosea, I pray that you would help us to to see the depths of your love for us. And as we um, think on and look on the beauty of Jesus Christ, help us to be changed by that love, that we would be more faithful to you, that we would be more engaged in the world around us to proclaim your truth to a world that doesn't know you. And I pray that it would give us perseverance to be pilgrims here that are faithfully led home in the last day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Chris, for that wonderful reminder. As we've been going through the minor prophets, uh, there's been some heavy stuff, right? We've seen that the last several weeks, and there's been little glimmers of hope, but this is this chapter really has been uh, an encouragement for what uh, God has done for us in Christ, what he's done for us as his children. And that reminder that Chris gave us to run from the emptiness of sin, to run towards God, his fulfilled promises, the fullness of his promises that have been fulfilled in Christ, that is the reminder that we need because we do have a compassionate and gracious God, one who sent his only son to live and to die in our place. And that is what we are reminded of as we come to this table. We are welcomed as his children to come to this table. This table is open to those who have professed faith in Christ, who have trusted him, not to those who say, oh, I have it all together. My life is perfect. I've done all the right things. I've, I've checked all the right boxes. My ducks were all in a row when I left for church this morning. It's not who this is for. It's for all those who say, I don't have it all together. And that's okay because there is one who has it all together for me in my place. And that's Jesus Christ. So if you have trusted in him, this table is open for you. We ask that you would be someone who has been baptized, who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church. I want to read Paul's reminder here from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about the Lord's Supper. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as Chris so faithfully reminded us, he is coming. He is coming back for his people. This is a proclamation of that return. 
It is a proclamation to the world that we are trusting in the God who sent his son, who came once for the first time to save us from our sin and who is coming again to take us to be with him forever. Paul then gives this reminder, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the cup, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. He even goes on to say here, as we've talked about consequences of of sin a lot in the minor prophets, he says, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. There are, there's the reality sometimes of physical consequences that we face uh, in this life for our sin, but we are to examine ourselves so that those things don't happen. We are to come to this table in a right, uh, with our hearts right before the Lord. So let's take some time now, uh, a few moments of silence before we come to the table.